You know, I want to ask you the question, how often do you actually give serious consideration to Christ's return? You know, I'm not just talking about like some sort of like intellectual kind of head knowledge. Like, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus, he's supposed to come back. Or like, you know, sometimes the moments in our life where like feel like the wheels are just coming off the cart, you know, like, okay, Jesus, come back. You know, we kind of think about it then. This is like, this is terrible. But I'm saying as a part of your everyday thinking and how you view reality, that you actually are understanding that, that Jesus is going to return. Interesting, when Jesus had his earthly ministry, a lot of times he told series, stories or parables about like wedding feasts and virgins waiting with lamp oil and household servants prepared and actually engaged in work and, and fig trees producing fruit. Because these stories that he was telling were all pointing to his return. And in Luke 18, 8, Jesus asked this question, when the son of man comes back, will he find faith on the earth? When he returns, will he find that there are actually people that are believing and waiting for his return? Last week, we had an awesome Easter celebration. It, it was a great weekend. And we just focused on the resurrection and all the implications of knowing Jesus, who is risen from the dead. But are we living in light of his return? Remember in Acts chapter 1, uh, you find in Acts 1 verse 3 that Jesus for 40 days presented himself. Acts 1 3 says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So the resurrected Jesus made all of these appearances and he was teaching his disciples, listen, you want to be prepared and be ready for my return. In fact, there are certain things that I want you to do. And he's talking about the kingdom of God, God's reign in the lives and the hearts specifically of his people, the spirit's salvation. And then remember in Acts 1, just go down a few verses, like beginning in verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? See, they believed and understood that Jesus will one day come and reign on the earth in an actual, literal, physical kingdom. Zechariah 14.4 says that he's actually going to step foot on the Mount of Olives. And so they're asking him, is this the time that that's going to happen? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But this is what I want you to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So he promised him the indwelling presence of his spirit. He kept telling them, you're going to receive power and you shall be my witnesses. And then he gives him the strategy in Jerusalem and then all of Judea, the southern kingdom, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. See, Christ is one day going to come back to this earth. And the question is, are we living in light of his return? What does that even look like? 
How do we do it? Well, that's why this text is so important. I remember meeting up with a, a missionary when I went to Russia, uh, John Corey. He's now with the Lord, but he had served in a lot of different places in the world at a lot of hot spots. He'd been in situations where, you know, he'd actually faced gunfire. And he told me when we were in Russia that he didn't think that many Americans were actually looking for the return of Jesus. I mean, why would they? You know, if you do not have an orientation to your life that Christ is coming back, your life is going to be going somewhat in the wrong direction. It is that important. In December of 1995, there was an American Airlines flight 965 that departed from Miami going to Cali, Columbia. And just a routine flight on this 757. And he had so glad, uh, the pilot who was kind of making his ascent, getting ready to land in Cali. And he set his radio navigation fix. Uh, he was pulling it up in the R's. He was looking for Rosa. And so he's, uh, a navigational fix is like a point that actually gives a specific longitude and latitude that they can compute that they are on track. And so he was looking for this particular position in the sky and he is flipping through, but instead of Roso, he actually accidentally selected Romeo. It, it looked like about the right latitude, longitude of where he was heading, and so he selected it. But the problem is that Romeo, that particular fix, was 132 miles to the northeast. And so he's making this descent into this valley surrounded by these mountains, heading into Cali. He's got the wrong fix. Um, he's communicating with the traffic controllers that speak very limited English, and they have no functional radar there in Cali at the time because in 1992, a few years prior, some leftist guerrillas had taken it out. And they're making their descent, but they had the wrong fix, and all of a sudden, suddenly... That 757 goes crashing into a granite mountain peak at 10,000 feet. 152 passengers and all eight crew members aboard perished, and four passengers survived with very serious injuries. The National Transportation Safety Board investigated, and they indeed found that the pilot had selected the wrong fix. You see, the computer told the pilot that he was tracking precisely to the beacon that he selected. The problem was he had selected the wrong fix and with disastrous consequences. You need to know that if 1 Thessalonians 5, like 1 through 11, and the return of Jesus Christ is not on your radar, it is not a fix in your mindset, your life is off course. So how do you and I live in light of Christ's return? Well, the first thing, and we're going to talk about this today, is that you've got to be clearly aware of what is entailed with Christ's second coming. So chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Now, as of the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So he says, what he's going to do, he's talking about the larger category of eschatology. Remember a couple weeks ago, we were in 4, 13 through 18, where he's talking about when Christ comes in the air, he is literally going to snatch up those who are believing on the earth because they are not destined for wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. He actually catches them up to himself. And we talked about that whole resurrection of the body that's going to be taking place for all of these believers that have passed away before the coming of Christ and what this looks like. But now, no longer is he talking about the blessings of the rapture of the believers. Beginning in chapter 5, he's going to be talking about the judgment of the unbelievers. He says, 
there's no need to actually write to you because he had already told them what they needed to know. And second, they're not going to face the judgments of that come with the day of the Lord. And so he says, you know, there's no need to talk about the times and the epics. Time has the, that word chronos has the idea of duration of a period of time, a quantity of time. Epics has the idea of certain marked features of a time or a particular characteristic of characteristics of a season. He says, I have no need to write to you. For verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, if you spend time reading the Old Testament, you know that the day of the Lord is a major theme of the prophets. But you also find it in the New Testament, this emphasis of the day of the Lord. What is it? Well, just to give you just a brief definition, it is a period of time for deliverance for God's people. But at the same time, the day of the Lord emphasizes destruction and, destruction and judgment for those who reject and refuse the living God. So it's a time of blessing for the believer, but it's a time of judgment for those who are unbelieving. And it is a period of time. It is not a literal 24-hour day. So when the prophets talk of the day of the Lord, uh, sometimes they would have like a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment, where God would actually judge the enemies of Israel. Or God would actually judge Israel themselves when they were super wayward, rejecting God, falling into idol worship. The day of the Lord had implications where God's at different times like, I'm going to deal with my people and there would be a judgment. But ultimately, the day of the Lord is this final outpouring of judgment upon the earth that comes when Christ returns. It's the 70th week of Daniel. And so God at some point, and it's the next point in God's program, is going to literally take up his believers and there will begin then this seven-year period of judgment. It's culminated like in Revelations chapter 6 through 19 with the intensity of this judgment, but it also includes after the thousand-year reign of Christ. After the seven years, there is a thousand-year reign of Christ, and then there is this final judgment upon the earth, which is also referred to as the day of the Lord. So it is blessing for the believer. It is judgment for the unbeliever. And he says, there are some things that you need to know about the day of the Lord. Let me give you three characteristics. First of all, the day of the Lord is going to come unannounced. Look at verse 2. He says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When does a thief come? When you least expect it. Thieves do not publish their itinerary like in the newspaper. They don't get on Instagram and saying, hey, I'm going to hit such and such a house at one for a certain particular time. No, they want to come unannounced. They want to come when you least expect it, right? I mean, they're not going to publish when they're going to come, especially in Texas. That could be very dangerous for a thief, right? So they're not going to do that. And he says, you know what? The day of the Lord, it's going to be completely unannounced, just like a thief in the night. This metaphor of a thief in the night has its origins with Jesus. Remember when Jesus was teaching and telling his disciples about his coming, he referred to it as, I will, it'll become like a thief in the night. So like, for instance, in Matthew 24, verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. So Jesus, when he was incarnated, he actually enters into humanity. 
In his humanity, the father had not even disclosed when the son will return. And Jesus went on to say in Matthew 24, verses 43 and 44, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So Jesus says this then, for this reason, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not think he will. This thief in the night always speaks of the day of the Lord in terms of judgment, not in terms of the rapture where God captures his people away, 4, 13 through 18, but in terms of judgment. It's going to come completely unannounced. And yet, over and over, people have tried to put a date on Christ's return. I mean, really early on, second century, there is a priest that actually says that I'm going to pinpoint the date at 500 AD. Did it happen? It did not. Or, for instance, uh, the non-Christian sect, the Jehovah Witnesses. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with them. Kingdom Hall, Watchtower Magazine, coming and visit you. On multiple occasions, they have predicted when Jesus is going to return. The first time was in 1914. That didn't work, so they moved it up to 1918. Then, oh, that, oh, not so sure, didn't happen. 1925, there again, didn't happen. Then the last time they did it was in 1975. 1975, Jesus will return. But of course they were wrong. But even in the evangelical world, despite the fact of what Jesus had to say and clear passages like this, that no one knows it's going to happen like a thief in the night, we've got a guy like by the name of Edgar Wisenant. He was a former NASA rocket scientist turned prophecy teacher. And he wrote two works, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, and another one called On Borrowed Time. And it was put together by none other than the World Bible Society into a booklet. And it was mass-produced because in it, uh, Wisenant actually said that during the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah in 1988, so that's a two-day, it's the beginning of the Jewish uh, civil calendar, it's like the Feast of Trumpets, he said on September 11th, from sunset the 11th, 1988, to sunset September 13th in 1988, Jesus is going to return. There will be the rapture of the saints. And this was taken, it actually kind of took Christendom by force. The World Bible Society printed 3.2 million booklets, and they were dispersed everywhere. They sent for free to over 200,000 pastors so they would have this with this specific date. But of course, September 11th through the 13th happened and Jesus didn't return. So they said, well, it's actually October 3rd. Well, October 3rd, 1988 went by. Nothing happened. Why isn't it, though, wasn't going to actually be shut down? And so he claimed that he got the number wrong in a minor calculation and that actually it was going to be in 1989. Which is kind of concerning that if our NASA uh, rocket scientists have bad math, we got trouble at NASA, right? But he said, well, there was a minor calculation error. And this is not, not kidding you. The, the original title that he, they wanted to report on this new booklet was to be 89 reasons why the rapture will be in 1989. But they said, no, we can't do that. So it was called the final shout report, the rapture report. But again, Jesus didn't come back in 1989. Or even more recently, and I'm sure many of you remember this, Harold Camping. 
May 21st, 2011 was the date that he selected. It was on billboards. Many Christians were believing that Jesus was going to come back based on what Harold Camping was saying. But of course, it didn't happen. Even today, you're driving along I-35 or on different roads and you see billboards where somebody has the idea that they're going to pinpoint the date of either the rapture or the return of Jesus Christ. And yet, what does the text say? You don't know. The Lord, the day of the Lord, will come just like a thief in the night. There are no events that have to take place. You don't be needing to be setting dates or looking for certain things. It's suddenly going to happen. Really, it's going to be like a stealth bomber. You know, a stealth bomber, it, it flies and radar can't detect it. And then all of a sudden, voila, the bomber is upon you and it unleashes its wrath. That's what the day of the Lord is going to be like. It will be seemingly undetected until it happens. Let me tell you something else about the day of the Lord that we see from this text. Not only is it going to be unannounced, but it's going to be unexpected. Look at verse 3. While they are saying peace and safety. Really interesting. Peace and safety. That's what the false prophets would tell Israel. In fact, like different kings, you can read about this. They would find prophets that would tell them what they wanted to hear. They weren't interested in what God was really saying. They just wanted to find things that made them happy or worked with their agenda. And so, of course, they could find somebody like, oh, yeah, you're going to be fine. No problem. You'll be able to wipe out this army. You have nothing to fear. And they were wrong because they were false prophets. By the way, you can find religious leaders, pastors that will tell you whatever you want. In fact, some of them are very interested in knowing the winds of the culture and whatever it's saying. That's what they're telling people. They will tickle people's ears and people will flock to them because, ah, this guy or this gal is telling me exactly what I want to hear. And so there'll be people that'll be saying peace and safety. And notice it says when they are saying, not the believer, they, the people of the world, they're going to be saying peace and safety. They're absorbed in the cares of this life. They're lulled into a false sense of safety and security. The idea of peace is the idea of feeling no alarm. Peace is kind of like when you're on vacation and you don't have to wake up at your usual time at 5 a.m. There are no classes to get to, no work to show up to. There's peace, man, no alarm. And safety has the idea that there are no external threats, no threats from God, no problems. It's peace and safety. And that's really what this will be like. People will, as a whole, turn a deaf ear to the whole idea of Christ coming back or any sense of judgment. It's like, nah, that's a myth. That is idiotic if you believe that. And it, I can assure you, I challenge you, find anybody, find any newspaper, anything on the web that talked about the return of Jesus Christ. And it could happen soon. No one thinks that way. No, 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 no. It's all about your peace. It's all about your safety. Got a little trouble here. Your peace is being messed up here. We're going to fix that. Very interesting. Peace and safety, that was actually the propaganda slogan of the Roman Empire. Pax et securitas. It is what Rome told the people that they dominated. And it was a very appealing slogan. And it was the idea that it is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And Rome literally set themselves up as like a virtual savior, a savior that will save you from unrest 
and danger. You just just believe, just trust. It is the Pax Romana. Romana. It is Pax et Securitas. And they would put it on coins. They would put it on monuments. They would make these official declarations. And they were promising this peace. In fact, like here's a coin. You see that? You see that? Pax Augusti. And what is that? That's the peace of Augustus. The peace of the emperor. And it's you. And they put it on one of their coins. And so this was Rome's promise. Peace. Safety. Security. And you know what? We might actually be in that boat as well. What really makes you feel like it is well with your soul? That you're okay? That you have peace and safety? A lot of folks are, how much money I got in the bank? How is my retirement account looking? Got money? I'm good. But there's also folks that are actually trying to find their peace and security in government just like they did 2,000 years ago. There are plenty of people that think that the government will take care of them and it's the government's role to pretty much provide for me and care for me to provide me peace and safety. And he says that's exactly what is going to happen. Um, you, you need to know something. The only people who will have peace and safety are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ right now. If you do not believe that Christ has entered into humanity, lived a perfect life, died and paid the penalty for men's sins, and rose again, you don't have peace and safety. And so you're going to find some sort of idol to try to squeeze it out of. But you are deluded. It's kind of like the unbeliever is kind of like the, the guy who jumped off the 50-story the building without a parachute. And while he's floating down, you know, he's just kind of making his way as gravity does its, its work. At the 30th floor, somebody yelled out, hey, how's it going? And he yelled back, well, pretty good so far. I mean, it's great. And friends, that's what it's like. You're cruising. You're like, hey, so far, so good. Thumbs up. It's very interesting. We, we can easily slip into this mode where it's, it's peace and safety. And I'm not really thinking about the return of Jesus. During the height of Marxism in Eastern Europe, like in the 40s and 50s, there was a Polish poet named Czesław Miłosz, and he wrote a book called The Captive Mind. And he was trying to explain why and how so many intelligent people could be seduced by the soulless philosophy of communism. And he was trying to especially like his, his own people. And what he said is that they had taken, taken this, what he called the Murti Bing pill. Now, unless you're like a literature major, you're like, don't even know what that's about. Uh, in 1927, one of Miłosz's uh, contemporaries wrote a book called um, The uh, In Instability. And in this book, he writes of these people that would take this Murdy Bing pill. So in the book of Instability, and this is where the Murdy Bing pill was, was much more popular back in the 40s and 50s and 30s. But in this book, Instability, uh, it's talking about this foreign army that was coming to invade and conquer Poland. And the Polish people were nervous and they were exhausted and they had no idea what they should do. Should they turn and try to find someone to help them? Should they fight to the death? Should they just kind of surrender and just give in? What should they do? But there were, they didn't have to worry because in this novel, uh, the leader of the, the, the army that was coming to invade Poland offered them this amazing gift. And this wonderful gift was the Murti Bing pill. You see, whoever took the Murti Bing pill 
would instantly become serene and happy. The worries of life, which included being worried about being conquered and enslaved, that, that no longer bothered them. And so if they would take the Murdy Bing pill, and when they did, they ceased to be worried about troublesome questions like the meaning of life or what happens after death. And everybody that took this pill, though, found out that they just couldn't completely erase their past or escape their problems, and so they became schizophrenic. So Miwosh, when he wrote his book, he was trying to explain how intellectuals and how all these smart people would capitulate to communism in the 40s and 50s and the 1900s. And so he said it's like they took the murky bing pill. It was the only thing that could help them cope with all the pain and the shock. It was too much to bear. So you just simply took this drug, this murdy bing pill, and it was just kind of fine, and you just escaped. How do we, today, take, like, the murky bing pill? I mean, how do we escape from the real questions of life, the reality that Jesus is coming back? Well, I'll just throw some different ones out. We find diversions, anything to keep us thinking. Um, there are distractions. There are addictions. There is like drugs or alcohol that you can just take and keep you to re from really thinking about what's really taking place. Here's another one. Just entertainment. Just moving from one entertainment fix to the other. Or even like social media. Really interesting. But there's, there's literally now millions of people that are just fixed and focused on media devices. They're interested in like how many people are liking you and liking even a little picture or something that you said and just fascinated by it and, and all these just irrelevant details about people's lives, but you're just, you're fixed and focused on it. There's some who have uh, kind of taken a pill like finding their faith in the government or in some sort of political system like communism or some sort of economic system like socialism, which by the way, look what's even happening in our own country. Do you even know what socialism is? Does anybody in our country? Very few. And yet, all of a sudden, it's like, this is a really good thing. Look what it can provide and give you all of these things. Why, well, it sounds like a murky bing pill, doesn't it? And yet, there's some people are putting their hope in a particular candidate as if they can save us or in a sense of spirituality apart from Christ. And we've got every flavor under the sun for you. And yet, when everybody is calling out peace and safety kind of lulled to sleep, then look at verse 3, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Suddenly, when it talks about destruction, it's not talking about annihilation. What it is, it's talking about the utter sense of hopelessness when you face ruin because you are separated from God. You face his judgment. Life becomes like a hopeless ruin. And it's suddenly like labor pains with a woman who's expecting a child. Uh, I don't have first-hand experience, but I've heard about this, that all of a sudden, about the ninth month, whammo, it hits. And all of a sudden, that process is engaging. You're about to give birth. The day of the Lord is going to be like that. It will be irreversible. Once the labor pains start, not the Braxton Hicks thing, the fake thing, the real thing hits, you it can't be stopped. You can't say, man, I really like being pregnant. Can we do this one more year? Okay. I need another Texas summer like this. No, you can't do it as much fun as that would be. Once it started, there is an inevitable land. That child is going to be born. And friends, that's how it's going to be like for the day of the Lord. Everything's peace, safety. Everything's cool. I'm fine. I got my spirituality. Really happy. Not thinking about Jesus. Never thinking about judgment. And then suddenly it will come.
the saints will be gone, and then judgment, that seven-year period of judgment, will happen. And you see, the characteristics of the day of the Lord, it's, it's unannounced, it's unexpected, and let me show you something else. It's unavoidable. Look at verse 3. They will not escape. You can turn your back on God, but you cannot escape the judgments that will come. So there will be people that are feeling secure. They're well off economically or politically. They feel safe spiritually. They're, they've got the idea that <laughs> there's no God, there's no judgment, that's just a big myth. It's scaring people. I don't That's not going to happen. And suddenly, it's going to take place. You see, you need to know something. By rejecting Christ as Savior and God as Creator... That does not mean you can rid yourself of him who is also the judge. That's what people think. Like, I don't want to believe that God created me. I don't want to believe that Jesus is the Savior. So that means that I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. Well, God exists whether you believe in him or not, whether you recognize him for who he is or not. And he is the judge. And this text is put here for us to understand that one day judgment will come. We won't face it. Look at verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. 5 9 says, God's not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be okay because we're going to be with the Lord. But if you do not know Christ, you will ultimately face judgment. The question is are you really a part of God's family? Are you, like in verse 4, one of the brethren? Are you rightly related to Jesus because you're trusting in him? And I know a church of our size that there has to be people that come here on a regular basis actually don't really know Christ. In fact, going to Fellowship Bible Church, you might almost find like it inoculates me because I'm around there teaching the Bible. I mean, all these people believe I'm going to be good. I'm I'm with the right people, right? Friends, if you do not know Christ today, you must believe. Otherwise, this is the judgment that you will face. There was a fanciful story about Satan who wanted to really just ensure the ruination of the souls of people on the earth. And so he he called his minions, some of his emissaries, different creatures, and he wanted to send one of them with a message. He wasn't sure what message it should be, so he asked well, one creature stepped forward and he said, Satan, I'll go. And Satan said, well, what are you going to tell them? He said, you know, I'm going to tell them that the people of the world, you don't have to worry because there's no heaven. Satan said, no, that's not going to work. They'll not believe you for there's a bit of heaven in every human heart. In the end, everyone knows that right and good must have the victory. No, you may not go. Well, then another came forward, darker and more fouler than the first. And Satan said, well, what are you going to say if I send you? Well, this one said, you know, this is what I'll tell them. I'll tell them that there is no hell. And Satan like, nah. Oh, no. They're not going to believe you. For in every human heart, there's a thing called conscience, an inner voice which testifies of the truth that not only will good be triumphant, but that evil will be, be defeated. No, you can't go. Then one of the last creatures came forward. This one from the darkest place of all. And Satan uh, said, what, what would you say? And here is this sly creature. And he simply said this, I will tell them 
there is no hurry. And Satan smiled and said, go. Friends, if you do not know that to reject God as creator and savior is to face him as judge, friends, you're going to be in a world of hurt. You must believe the gospel. You must believe in Christ, for that is the only place of peace and safety. And what a glorious peace and safety it is. And how do you know, if you're a believer, that you're grasping this truth, that you've got the right navigational fix, that thinking about and believing in the return of Jesus actually is a part of your thinking? Well, what would show up? Well, one is, you're going to have a deeper sense of devotion to Christ. That there's going to be a genuine love, a great value, a prized possession of knowing Jesus. Like he's your, your closest friend. Let me tell you something else to know that you've got the right navigational fix on the return of Jesus. There will be a stronger compassion for the lost. You'll see people who are apart from Christ and you see their behavior and it, it's hurtful and it's destructive to you and to others. And, and you'll understand that it's the origins and the outworking of a soul that is far from God. It's a part of their sinful condition. It's being manifested. And let me give you one other. When you're grasping this truth, there will be a growing desire to share the gospel. You'll realize that really, apart from knowing Christ, you only face him as judge. And you will be willing to speak the truth in love. You will be willing to take some risks in your relationship. But this is the problem. I'm not sure we really believe this. We are pretty content to sit on our hands and just like, well, I don't want to disturb anybody. I don't want to take any risk in any relationships because what if it creates friction? What if they don't like what I have to say? And guess what, friends? We're just sitting and just watching it happen. To know the truth and not to respond to it, I would say is a pretty dangerous situation. Is there, I just got a question. Is there just anybody that would be willing to take some risks? Is there anybody that's like, you know what? I think I am going to write that letter to my relative. I think I will talk to my fellow student or classmate or the person I'm working with or in the neighborhood. Is there anybody that believes, because if you believe, this text will prompt you to action? Craig Larson writes of his experience uh, during the winter uh, in Chicago of 2009. Remember how that major snowstorm? He has this two-story house. They had over a foot of snow on the roof, and it was a terrible winter. Remember, they were all kind of like, had to stay in their houses, couldn't really go anywhere. Well, one thing started to thaw out. Uh, he looked at the, his roof line there, and he saw this, like, glacier kind of coming off the roof, and it was just hanging over there, right over his driveway where he had his four cars. He had a big family, and everybody had one car. They were all lined up in the driveway, and he's, like, looking at the glacier, and, you know, it's like, that would come. It would crash right onto one of these cars here. But, of course, I've lived here for 20 years, and that's never happened. You're like, nah, it's probably not going to happen. I think I'm good. So he goes off to work. He comes back at home like, oh, yeah, I forgot about the glacier there. It's still hanging there. It's fine. He's like, you know, maybe after dinner, I will move my car way over to the side here just to avoid. Well, or, you know, I could park it on the street, but, of course, I have to call the police to make get permission to do that. Uh, that's just too much work. And he just goes to bed. Next night, he comes back. Uh, he sees the glacier still there. He's like, well, yeah, I should probably do something about that. But... Oh, it's calling for a really cold night, a big, a big freeze. You have nothing to worry about. <laughs> that, that glacier is going to stay right there. He told his wife about it, and uh, 
He goes the next morning, he thought about actually moving the cars because it was going to warm up. But he's like, that'll make me five minutes late for work. Nah, nah. Well, the wife, smart one of the bunch, she goes out and she assesses the situation. She sees the glacier. She sees the cars. She's like, okay, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to move the cars. But the first thing I'm going to do is I just need to finish uh, some of this cooking that I've got going on the kitchen here. I'm getting things prepared here. And so she finishes. She's in the kitchen making her dish and about ready to put it in the oven. And all of a sudden she hears this big crash. And lo and behold, that glacier finally fell and took a, their car took a direct hit. And friends, I tell you that because the beginning of the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord, it's going to be just like that. There are a lot of folks, they hear about it, they, they understand this is what the Bible says, this is what Jesus said, but they do nothing about it, and then suddenly he'll come. My question I need to ask you is, are you ready? You see, we are ready for Christ's second coming when we are fully aware of the implications of his return. Let's pray.